You're listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast focused on Germany, the United States, and the transatlantic relationship. Join us as we discuss economics, politics, security, and more. I'm Jeff Rafke, president of the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Welcome to this edition of The Zeitgeist. Uh, I'm Jeff Rathke, and I'm here today um, with my senior fellow and director of the Society, Culture, and Politics program, uh, Eric Langenbacher. And we are very delighted to have with us as a special guest, uh, Dr. Daniela Schwarzer. Uh, Daniela Schwarzer is the director of the German Council on Foreign Relations, which goes by the initials DGAP in German. Um, she has held a number of senior positions uh, in the uh, let's say, the thinking and uh, journalistic space. She was the director of the Berlin office of the German Marshall Fund, has also worked at the Stiftung Wissenschaft und Politik, uh, and was also a, uh, a professor uh, associated with the Johns Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies. Among other things, Daniela Schwarzer is also the co-chair of a recent report, uh, which is entitled Stronger Together, A Strategy to Revitalize Transatlantic Power. That report was done jointly with the uh, Belfer Center at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government. So welcome, Daniela Schwarzer. I'm very glad to be with you. So uh, I'm going to turn the microphone over to Eric Langenbacher in, in a moment, um, but what we're going to talk about today is um, uh, precisely that, uh, that set of issues. What does it mean to revitalize transatlantic power? What are the obstacles? Um, what are the objectives? And, uh, and how can we expect that to develop in the coming years? So Eric, why don't you take us, uh, take us forward from here um, and, uh, and we'll go ahead. Uh, thanks, Jeff, and uh, welcome, Daniela. So uh, I hope we're ha we'll have a wide ranging discussion about the current state and the future of the transatlantic relationship, as Jeff mentioned, uh, not just in light of a new administration here in Washington, DC, but also in light of the upcoming election for the German parliament, a new chancellor, and likely a new partisan government, a new partisan coalition. But why don't we first start with the US side? So uh, US President Joe Biden has made multiple reassuring comments about repairing or revitalizing the transatlantic relationship. How have these overtures been received in Germany and Europe? And what concrete measures from the US side could help to rebuild trust. Daniela? Well, thank you very much for that question, Eric, and thanks again for having me today. Um, I think the, the message was very well received and with a great degree of relief, really. The four Trump years have obviously been very tough for Europeans and there was so much hope put into uh, the presidential elections. However, no one is naive, I would say in two ways. One is that Joe Biden has an enormous domestic agenda uh, that he will have to tackle. So the expectation is, yes, he is very uh, constructive with regards to transatlantic relations, multilateralism, so many important things he has already said and done. However, his attention will be focused on domestic affairs quite a bit. And the second, second thing that Europeans uh, don't have illusions about is that this is now a four-year period where we can rebuild and revitalize transatlantic relations. The first two years will probably be the most dynamic ones ahead of the midterm elections. But then what comes after those four years, no one really knows. 
So um, this is a debate which divides Europeans in some sense, because some see this as a huge opportunity now to really rebuild and re revive the relationship. And others say, yes, but we have to be very cautious. We have to look at our own autonomy. This is the term that most divides Europeans, strategic autonomy as someone to have it. Um, and we can come to that maybe at a later point, but I just want to say that Europeans are well aware that this is a huge opportunity, um, but that we can't be sure that four years uh, in the future, we will again, after the next presidential elections, will be in a situation that we have a very constructive partner in the White House. Jeff, your thoughts? Uh, uh, well, I, I, I agree with Daniela's observations. I, I think the things that, one of the things that strikes me is the, uh, the, the problem of disconnected timelines, um, because it's absolutely true, as Daniela just said, that the, the first two years of the Biden administration uh, are going to be, on the one hand, focused on domestic affairs, but especially there, that is the time when the most uh, progress, uh, I think, will need to be made, because you have a Democratic majority in both houses right now. You have uh, at least the, you know, the right conditions uh, to do certain uh, things. And you don't know what will happen in the midterms. And, uh, and so you need to, as they say, make hay while the sun shines. But if we look across uh, the Atlantic, uh, we see a Merkel-led uh, government that I would say has been you know, focused exclusively uh, on the COVID pandemic uh, and okay, exclusively may go too far, but um, uh, has predominantly been focused on the pandemic, um, managing it, and then the economic response, has had a few international objectives, uh, most of which uh, had to do with, uh, for example, the, uh, the EU-China investment agreement it concluded at the end of last year. And if, you, if, if I listen uh, and read the text of Merkel's address to the Munich Security Conference just a couple of weeks ago, there was... Um, on the one hand, a lot in common with uh, the Biden uh, ambitions, but I would say fairly little detail and not a lot of energy um, in it. Um, for those who who follow the, the Munich Security Conference, you know, a couple of years ago, Merkel spoke and gave a really uh, impressive, uh, brilliant uh, uh, set of remarks um, that to a certain degree were delivered, you know, um, uh, either from memory um, or um, just within the passion uh, of the moment. It was kind of a rejection of Trumpism really uh, when you get right down to it. And, um, and the, the miracle that we saw two weeks ago uh, was a much more measured, uh, sober and less, um, uh, seemed less uh, personally invested uh, in it, if I may say. It, I, maybe I'm alone in that uh, judgment. Well, I think really comparing the two uh, speeches is interesting because um, the former speech was very much interpreted as she is positioning herself as the leader of the West, uh, facing the Trump administration, facing the ongoing destruction of the multilateral order and the undermining of institutions and even of the norms and values uh, that build the basis of the transatlantic relationship. And it was a moment where Europeans were deeply concerned and most of all Germans. And now it is the moment really to deliver because Biden has done what he promised again in Munich uh, two years ago. He said, we will be back. 
now the US is back and Europe and Germany are struggling with the question, how do we concretely now fill this relationship? How can we substantively work together to really rebuild something? And it is not about a return to Obama times. It is really more about inventing a transatlantic agenda for the future. And there are quite a number of difficult issues to tackle. And if, if I could just add one thought there, and that is my, my impression um, is of course, Germany always likes to act in concert with others, um, whether that is in a European framework or with other close relationships, for example, the relationship with France. Um, but I think Germany underestimates in many cases its importance and its central role because that's, that brings up all sorts of uncomfortable um, uh, kinds of uh, uh, questions. Uh, and I think this is one of those uh, uh, junctures where uh, on the one hand, in the remaining months of Merkel's leadership as chancellor, uh, there is a need to do a lot to reframe, to rebuild the transatlantic relationship. And, uh, and, and I hope um, that, uh, that, that the, the circumstances can propel her and her government uh, to fulfill that role. But I think there are some real obstacles. Uh, that brings me to my second question. And Jeff, I just had an idea that we should have a countdown clock on our website that there's only, what, eight months left of Miracle, <laughs> seven, six, five? Well, it depends on how long it takes to form a coalition. Um, she, she could break Helmut Kohl's record if it takes until the uh, end of the year to form a coalition. Yeah, and I don't know if you've been watching the Sonntagsfrage polling, but the CDU is slipping, the Greens are slipping, the SPD, SPD is up a little bit. Today I saw a poll that the SPD and the Greens were tied, which I don't think I've seen for years. So I don't know, there, there seems to be a lot of uncertainty. That being said, it's a near certainty that the next chancellor will come from the union party. So either the CDU or the CSU. And the two names that um, are, are, are constantly circulated are Marcus Suda, uh, the Bavarian minister president, or Armin Laschet, the minister president from North Rhine-Westphalia, and now also, of course, the chair of the CDU. So I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about the foreign policy views of both of these likely chancellors and how that would impact uh, the transatlantic relationship. Um, Daniela, would you like to start with Suda? Yes, well, Suda isn't really profiled on many international issues yet. Uh, Laschet has said quite a bit more. Um, but what we know about Söder is, first of all, that he uh, is probably a bit more conservative than Laschet, that he has um, close ties, for instance, with Kurz, the Austrian chancellor. They have exchanged several times. He has more restrictive views. Now, this is more European issue than a transatlantic issue, for instance, on the question of migration. Um, and he would possibly uh, move Germany closer to those countries in the European Union that have a slightly more sovereignist approach. I'm not saying that Germany would change its fundamental attitudes, but I think the tone would change. Um, and what is important to see is that behind Merkel's policy vis-a-vis -vis the EU partners, so in particular this um, 
continuous line of holding the EU together, although in a very German way, and we can discuss what that meant over the past years, um, this shows the fundamental German interest, and that is to keep the single market as one, not to have it split up. Um, it is also quite strongly oriented towards Central and Eastern Europe because Germany's economic ties toward the region are pretty important. And of course, Söder is the by Bavarian prime minister. He knows that very well. It's a bordering region, for instance, to the Czech Republic. Um, so uh, I would say there will be quite a bit of continuity with regards to those fundamental uh, approaches to the EU. But then come the two interesting topics uh, China and, and Russia. And here I would say the choice of the person may make a certain difference, but fundamentally one big issue for Germany will not be solved. And for China, this is a very strong dependency on good and tight economic relationships with China. Um, we have very close ties in terms of export destination. China is hugely important. German companies are strongly invested in China. Um, and we are also dependent on imports from China. And so the discussion about um, Germany's China policy, in my view, can best be judged from a structural perspective rather than looking at personalities and what they may have said over the past month. Um, and I guess that Germany and the European Union with that issue will have the most difficult challenge to tackle, not only among themselves, but also uh, with regards to the transatlantic agenda on China. Well, I think that's, um, it, you know, there is, when we think about Russia and China, uh, I agree that there is, th these are not necessarily personality driven um, uh, issues. I think in the case of Merkel, you could argue that her uh, her own uh, background and uh, her decades-long uh, interaction in one form or another with either the Soviet Union or with uh, with with Russia has uh, you know had had a shaping influence on her. But I think fundamentally, you know, when we look at the issues in the in the differing views across the Atlantic uh, on on Russia and China. Uh, these have deeper roots. Um, and, and so I think one of the challenges for the United States uh, is to be, uh, you know, not to let our ambition uh, overtake the practicalities um, and the realities on the ground in Europe. Um, I, I think we always, especially in transitions from one administration to another, we have real uh, dangers of, of differing perceptions and expectations and I think that's certainly the case when it comes to China now, uh, because there is a, a pretty solid bipartisan consensus in the United States that China is the central foreign policy issue of the coming decades. And that therefore, now that Donald Trump uh, and his administration are behind us, you know, uh, I think many people just want to forget that it happened um, and focus on the future and building a coordinated approach to China, maybe even a joint strategy, um, depending on whom you ask. Uh, but I think that um, th that overlooks the history um, uh, of the last four years. And it, it also, it, it uh, fails to take account of what Daniela was just mentioning, the, the deep dependency of, the, of some parts of the German economy uh, on China. Um, and, and, and so I think that uh, you know, either Zuder or Laschet is going to have to deal with that. I think 
you've you also have seen uh, if I can switch maybe to Armin Laschet here, he gave an interview uh, that was published in Internationale Politique, um, uh, and in which he went into some some depth on uh, the uh, foreign policy issues. Uh, I think in part because he's gotten a bit of a a reputation among people trying to read the tea leaves of his statements over the years, and and people have tried to characterize him as sort of pro-China, pro-Russian. Um, and uh, and played up his disagreement with the United States over Middle East policy, especially Syria. Uh, so I think he's been trying to uh, correct that record. And I think there's going to be a lot more of this to come as we move into the selection of a chancellor candidate, which could take place maybe next month, um, certainly by uh, by the by May. Oh, I can't resist a comment on Laschet's. That was the article where he said, "Ich bin Realpolitiker." Right. Yes. Yet he also kept talking about values and, you know, the, the wonderful transatlantic worldview and everything like that. I'm like, dude, you know, it, it, these two don't usually go hand in hand. But, you know, well, he is a, a top notch politician and top notch politicians aren't always completely consistent. Right. Um, so let's move on, because we are um, running out of time a little bit. And I want to talk about uh, the next potential coalition government. Sure, I just observed that the polls seem to be much more in flux, but why don't we assume for a second, like we have for a while, that the likely next government will be a black-green government, so CDU, CSU, with the Greens, um, although the Greens could very well implode as they have many times before. But um, I was wondering uh, about your thoughts on what the Greens would bring to foreign policy and to the transatlantic relationship more specifically, what kind of influence would they have? Would they make things easier or would they create bones of contention? The first thing they would bring is a very strong European commitment. Um, that's really in the DNA of the party and they have rather consistently, um, both when they were in government as an, and as an opposition party, always um, held up the, the European um, flag and also in crisis times when uh, the going was a little tough in the German debate, for instance, uh, in the midst of the Euro crisis when the rescue packages for Greece had to be uh, decided upon, the Greens were consistently pro-European and argued the case very well and very, very realistically why Germany had to uh, make this happen. Now, looking forward, I think for the transatlantic agenda, the big transition topics that will uh, occupy minds in Germany uh, in the next few years to come will also be very relevant from the green perspective for the transatlantic agenda. The big thing is, of course, uh, climate change, the prevention of climate change and dealing with the costs of uh, the green transition uh, from an economic and socioeconomic perspective. Um, but then also the question of how can the US and Europe work together to act as global leaders on climate change and bring in, in particular, China uh, into a sort of into a strong commitment to this global agenda. Um, the second big transition agenda is, of course, the tech agenda. And from a green perspective, they somewhat belong to each other. And Germany has a quite long way to go when it comes to our competitiveness, our infrastructure, and so on in the field of technology. Um, and I would expect uh, the Greens and government to push both for 
more European efforts in that tech transition. And we know that the picture is rather grim with regards to European competitiveness in key segments like AI, uh, semiconductors or others. Um, and so I, I would think they would go for a double strategy, first uh, a European approach and then a transatlantic approach. And that regard uh, facing China, the transatlantic agenda would be from a green perspective, really anchored in, in Western liberal values because the issue of tech is not only a competitiveness issue, but most of all the question whether Europe, um, hopefully together with the US can actually uh, lead on tech regulation. And that goes to the heart of democracy um, and the Greens have, have taken quite strong positions on those issues. If, if I could pick up on the, on, on that uh, that factor it, it strikes me that there is you know on the one hand for these future oriented issues um there is a desire uh, not only among the greens but i think more generally in the german political system to work um uh, cooperatively with european partners um but i think we've also seen at least in some cases in the past um the the limits and the national uh, basis of uh, the, the national hurdles that uh, exist. I think back, for example, to the negotiations on TTIP, <clears throat> which um, you know the transatlantic uh, trade agenda in the Obama administration between the U.S. and Europe was to a significant degree um, halted by the objections of um, well, not just environmentalists, but basically, I think the 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 the, the green and green adjacent movements uh, in Europe which were focused on questions of genetically modified uh, uh, organ, uh, organisms and, uh, and so forth. Um, I think, and I think that was um, a reminder um, that there are deeper uh, domestic uh, uh, policy imperatives uh, that are not always those articulated by the leadership of a particular political party. I mean, if you listen, if you listen to the most prominent voices on foreign policy from the Green Party, for example, um, you know, it's, it seems like there's a whole lot of uh, room for transatlantic approaches on a variety of issues, not just the environmental uh, and technological ones, but also security and defense even. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, the Greens, I think for an American observer, are among the most difficult to predict when it comes to um, the, the ability of the leadership to persuade the base uh, the party activists, the party's core, um, that uh, you know, to, to move in a particular direction that is perhaps necessary to govern. Um, uh, so do you see those kinds of fault lines uh, remaining uh, a problem for, uh, for green participation in government, Daniela? Well, first of all, I think your point is very right that uh, leading the parliamentary group of the Greens is really a hugely important political task. Um, because if we can believe uh, opinion poll data, this is going to be a, uh, a growing and rather almost maybe doubling parliamentary group or even more. So a lot of new MPs will be coming in um, and uh, the Green Party is quite diverse in its base, um, in particular on foreign policy and defense issues. And here the move from a an opposition party to a coalition partner would be politically a challenge. Um, 
But what the Greens, in, in my observation at least, have done over, over the past month very seriously is really question their positions um, where uh, government responsibility simply means something different. And I find that in particular on defense matters, um, it is very interesting to, to observe where, where the party debate has gone. Um, and I do think there is indeed a much broader um, uh, transatlantic agenda with a, a government that could have a green coalition partner, as Jeff has said. Um, however, it is not that likely that, for instance, the Greens would pick the defense ministry. So um, there we would rather, in, in that scenario, which we're discussing here, very probably have continuity uh, with, uh, with a CDU uh, minister, I would guess from today's perspective. This yeah, is maybe not the preferred ministry for a Green Coalition partner. Mm. All right, we're um, rapidly running out of time, um, but uh, I will pose one final question, and that is, you know, is there anything that is important for the transatlantic relationship that we haven't already kind of spoken about? We've talked about Biden, we've talked about a new government, a new chancellor, we talked a little bit about China, um, maybe Russia. Uh, Russia was brought up uh, briefly before, but, um, you know, what do you think the new chancellor and the new government's stance towards Russia will be? And do you think that will create tensions with the um, approach of the Biden administration? On Russia, um, I think the most contentious point at the moment is uh, obviously Nord Stream 2, where uh, it is not likely that the project will be stopped. Uh, I could have imagined scenarios like a moratorium um, that at least in the beginning month of, of the Biden administration would have helped uh, the transatlantic partners to sort out a more fundamentally shared approach towards Russia. But I think this, you know, this, this project is not going to be stopped at this point, at least. Um, so the task still is, and this is not only a transatlantic endeavor, but also a, a really a European one, the EU has to figure out how, how it deals with Russia. And recently we have seen a real hardening uh, of positions, uh, in particular after the Navalny poisoning and the German decision to uh, bring him to Germany, um, the, the government's position really uh, was very firm. And now the, the recent and rather quick by EU standards decision on uh, sanctions on Russian individuals, I think was an important move. Um, and that shows us that uh, the EU really uh, has reached uh, a state where, where people are rather fed up with uh, the relationship with Russia, where many have tried to argue, yes, we need a constructive approach. We need to always keep a door open. Yes, maybe. But President Putin has shown over, over the past month again and again uh, how he pursues his own agenda, how he uh, disrespects, of course, human rights uh, and individuals, and how he also treats the EU. Um, that was really the takeaway from the visit of the High Representative Joseph Borrell to, to Moscow recently. And all this uh, has created a, 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 I would say, a more unified European position. Let me just add one aspect, Eric, because you asked for the topics that we may not have discussed for the transatlantic agenda. I really think it is the future of democracy that we need to discuss, and not only because uh, Europeans are so worried with what they have witnessed happening over the past four years in the United States. We also have to look at ourselves, the backsliding democracy of Hungary and Poland within the European Union, 
But for transatlantic discussion, we also have to look at NATO uh, and decide what the situation in Turkey means for, uh, for the alliance. So it is both a, I would say, um, a conversation to be had between two sides of the Atlantic where the awareness has risen, how fragile democracy is, and the longer the pandemic lasts and the stronger the socioeconomic consequences of the health crisis are, the more worried we have to be about the stability of democracy. So um, both for looking at each other, looking at the same problems together and looking out to the world and reaffirming this commitment to democracy and Western liberal values, this is really key for the Alliance to move ahead. Mm -hmm. it, I think uh, the, the values issue is, is a fascinating one and you, you hit on one of the central contradictions uh, in it, uh, Daniela, because for, uh, for years, uh, NATO has, uh, has failed to deal adequately with an increasingly authoritarian um, uh, you know, rule uh, of Erdogan. Uh, and, and for an equally long period of time, the European Union, and I would say, in particular, the CDU, CSU, have failed to set any meaningful limits um, on uh, Viktor Orban's uh, you know, rule uh, and his uh, the increasing um, uh, authoritarian um, uh, system that he has he has constructed. Um, so, uh, but then when you when you listen to the remarks of Joe Biden, who uh, in Munich at the virtual Munich Security Conference characterized the uh, the, the issue as one of democracy. Uh, versus authoritarianism, um, then uh, it, it is uh, it, it becomes a difficult uh, difficult one uh, to address. And and frankly, you know, I think from, from an American perspective, we we are uh, we are able to uh, to set those kinds of priorities and to make them a uh, an animating force in our foreign policy. Uh, not always to good effect, by the way. Uh, you know, th if you look at the last 20 years, I think you can see plenty of uh, uh, foreign policy initiatives that have been justified by uh, values uh, explanations that have turned out miserably. Um, uh, the the problem on the European side is a bit the opposite: that there is a, a, a caution, a, a a reluctance, uh, an emphasis on restraint, which means that the ambition to try to address those values issues is lacking. So uh, I, I, even reaching the, the, that, that agreement seems to me to be a real, um, will take uh, some significant political efforts. Uh, and it will be with the next chancellor, not with the current one. So I'd really like to thank Daniela uh, and Jeff, obviously. Um, and Jeff, do you have some um, final, final words? Oh my goodness, no! I, I I think there's there's so much here that we will that is that are going to shape uh, the uh, the way we look at the transatlantic relationship for um, for the four years to come uh, and beyond. So uh, I was really glad to have this opportunity to talk about it with you, Daniela, and we look forward to keeping up the conversation. Thank you very much for having me. It was a real joy to talk with you. Well, thanks everybody for listening to this episode of the Zeitgeist. There we go, Eric. And we'll see you next time uh, and, uh, and uh, look forward to having you with us again. Thanks for listening to The Zeitgeist, a podcast produced by the American Institute for Contemporary German Studies at Johns Hopkins University. Send us your feedback by email to info at AICGS.org or catch us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at AICGS. 
Don't forget to check out AICGS.org for more information from today's episode. Auf Wiederhören.